listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Our text this morning is found in John chapter 1, verse 35, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to gather with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and I'm just grateful to be able to worship with you and now open up God's word with you. So as we do every week, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are a, a funny and fickle people. We chase after joys and pleasures left and right, but most of those things, if we're honest, are, are fleeting. They're temporary things, things that won't last, things that won't ultimately satisfy. 
And so God, my prayer this morning for all of us, whether we call ourselves followers of Jesus or not, is that you would help us as we listen to your word this morning, that you would help us by your spirit to find our joy, to find our satisfaction, not in the things this world offers to us, but to find our joy and our satisfaction in you. God, I pray that you would captivate our hearts this morning as we see Jesus today. And God, that by doing so, that you would be honored, you would be glorified, and you would change our lives because we're here now listening to your word. God, thank you for this time. May you be honored in it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there are multiple times throughout our lives where we encounter or come across or run up against uh, requirements for entrance. Entrance requirements. These requirements, though, they often depend on what it is that we're trying to get into. Sometimes entrance requirements could be based off demographics, right? There could be a contest that you're trying to get into, and it says something like you have to be 18 years old to enter or 21 years old to enter into this contest to win this prize. You may have to live in a particular place in order to be eligible for the prize. Demographics can be used negatively as well when entrance requirements are put out in front of people. You could bar someone from entrance based off their gender or their ethnicity or their background or, from, or where they're from. Sometimes entrance requirements can be based on merit. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I went to try out for my freshman basketball team and I showed up along with about 300 other guys that wanted to make the freshman basketball team of 12. I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be one of those people because my skills were not as good as they needed to be to make the team, right? You have to be able to perform in a certain way sometimes to be welcomed into a particular thing. College acceptance, your SAT scores, your ACT scores, your GPA have to be at a certain level to get into certain kinds of schools. Every kind of hall of fame there is, whether it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or Sports Halls of Fame, whatever that happens to be, you have to have done something that warrants you being welcomed in. But what all of these requirements have in common is that they're just that, they're requirements. You must perform or provide or fit a certain formula in order to be admitted. But what about entrance into the presence of God? I mean, this has to be, of all places that you could try to get into, that you could try to enter, this is the most significant. I mean, if you think about who God is and all of his holiness and all of his glory and all of his radiance and all of his perfection, what does it take for you or for me to be able to actually enter into his presence? The culture we live in, I think, gets confused about this and often gives contradictory messages when it comes to being in the presence of God, getting into heaven. I mean, it's interesting to me that a culture that builds itself on proving that you belong, that often puts merit out at the forefront of how we live our lives, can at the very same time assume that everyone's going to get into heaven. On the flip side of that, a culture that lauds acceptance, that everyone's accepted and everyone's welcomed, can oftentimes put forward that you have to perform at a certain level and be good enough or religious enough to get into heaven. So which is it? Well, really, it's neither one of those things. See, today as we come to our text, this last section in John chapter 1 in our sermon series called Seeing Jesus, we not only hear Jesus speak for the first time in this story, in this narrative, but we see Jesus engage with two types of people. And in engaging with them, we learn something crucial and critical about him When it comes to Jesus, 
When it comes to Jesus, seekers and skeptics are welcome. When it comes to Jesus, seekers and skeptics are welcome. And it's in that truth that we can see clearly what is required to be reconciled to God, to enter into his presence now and forever. So this morning, whether you would identify yourself as someone who's seeking, and what I mean by that is you're, you're trying to kind of figure out this whole God thing or Jesus thing or church thing, and you're, you're here, maybe you've been coming for a while or a friend invited you this morning, or maybe you'd say, man, I'm not really seeking, I'm, I'm more of a skeptic. I'm already kind of coming in and saying, this can't be true. Uh, my idea of who God is, this religion and faith and all that stuff, I'm just not sure about any of those things. I feel skeptical towards that. Or if you're sitting here this morning and you already are full of faith, you're following Christ, wherever you find yourself this morning, I'm thankful you're here. I'm looking forward to getting into this story. But my hope for you is that no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, is that God, by His Spirit, as we open up His Word this morning, would help you and me to see Jesus clearly, and in seeing Jesus clearly, enable you to take a step forward in faith. Whatever that means for you this morning, so that you might follow Him, and following Him, truly know Him. And so with that, let's dive into our text this morning. John chapter 1, 35 through 51, and may we see Jesus more clearly today. This section in the narrative that John's writing, the story of, that John's writing can really be divided up into two parts. And if you, most Bibles have placed a heading over those two parts, verses 35 through 42 and then verses 43 through 51 kind of separate out these two parts. But these two parts are weaved together with Jesus being at the center of it all. The first part, like I said, is verses 35 through 42, and I'm labeling that the seeker. The Apostle John has just given us a longer description of John the Baptist's ministry. We looked at that last week when Reed was here preaching for us. And, and he talked about who John the Baptist is, that John is, is the, um, the forerunner for Jesus. He's the announcer. He's Jesus' hype man, right? He's coming out and he's going to tell people about Jesus, but he's not some high-priced PR savvy marketer or consultant. John is a weird dude. He wears weird clothes, he does weird things, and he lives out in the wilderness, away from the city, away from the town. Yet he's preaching this message of the coming kingdom of God. He's preaching this message of repentance, and he's attracting a group of followers. People are coming after and listening to what he has to say. As we learned last week, though, John's call in his life, his purpose in his life, isn't to gain a crowd that people might follow him, but as they follow him so he can point them to Jesus. So they can look to him. And when he sees Jesus, he confidently declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, as we come to our text today, John the Baptist is still in view. In fact, verse 35 starts off saying, The next day. So this is happening right after what we looked at last week. But this time, we see that John is with two of his disciples. Now, what does the word disciple mean? We see that word often in Scripture, and as a church, part of our vision, the reason we exist as a church is we want to glorify God by making disciples. Disciples are learners, that they're followers. In fact, what it means to be a disciple is someone who attaches themselves to a teacher and would literally follow them around. So in Jesus' day, they didn't have universities to go to, they didn't have tons of books to read, but they had teachers. And so a teacher would be teaching, and as that teacher walked, his disciples, his followers, his learners would walk behind him and listen to him as he spoke, and learn from him. 
So John has these two disciples, and so they're learning from John. And as he's standing there with his disciples, his learners, he sees Jesus and he says again, Behold the Lamb of God. This reference to Jesus being the Lamb of God is hugely significant. Reed talked about this a bit last week, but I just want to make sure that we're understanding the significance of what John means when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And this would have been especially significant for a Jewish audience. It's alluding to the sacrificial system that God has set up for his people that we read about in the Old Testament. That in order for sinful humanity, you and me, for us to be able to be in relationship with God, we need a substitute to stand in our place in order for us to be able to relate to God. And so he set up this sacrificial system to remind us of that, to point us to that. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death. What that means is, is that our rebellion against God, when we've thrown off God's authority in our life, when we've sought to go our own way and declare ourselves the rulers of our own lives, the consequence of that is a capital offense. Because God is holy and he's perfect and he's righteous. And that makes sense because God isn't some local tribal temperamental deity. You know, he's the king creator. He's the sovereign Lord of all. But even more than just referring to the sacrificial system, what John is doing when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God is explicitly connecting Jesus to two specific Old Testament prophecies that were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ ever walked on this earth. The first is the Passover lamb. If we go back to the book of Exodus, we see God's people are in captivity, in slavery, under the rulership of the Egyptian nation. And God sends Moses to set his people free. If you're not familiar with that story, you can go back and read it in the book of Exodus. It's fascinating. But at the very end of this long journey of Moses telling Pharaoh he needs to let God's people go so they might go worship him, the final and last thing he does to get Pharaoh's attention is he says, I'm going to send death into this city. And the firstborn of every family will be killed. But he tells his people this, sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint it over your doorposts. And when the spirit of death comes into the town, it will pass over your home. Why? Because a sacrifice has been made. A substitute has been made. Blood has been shed to stand in your place. What we see here is John saying he's referring to Jesus as this kind of person. He is the Passover lamb who will stand in your place. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, Isaiah also, writing hundreds of years before Christ ever walked this earth, writes this, speaking of this suffering servant who would come. He says this in Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah's writing this prophecy saying there's a suffering servant that will come, and as he comes, he'll be rejected, but in his rejection, he will bear the weight of our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, a promise was made long ago. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 3, we learn that sin and death will not have the last word. We learn that a Redeemer would come to rescue and restore God's people. 
So John the Baptist is looking for that Redeemer. He's eager to find that Redeemer, to look for him, to place his eyes on him so that he might follow him. And because he's fixed on when this Redeemer would come, this Messiah would come, so are his followers, so are his disciples. They were seeking. So what happens? When John sees Jesus, what does he do? He tells his disciples to look, look. He says, behold. That's what it means. Look on him. Fix your eyes on him. I want you to see Jesus too for who he truly is. And in hearing John's words and seeing Jesus, it says they follow him. Now I think John's being a little bit creative in his writing here when he says they follow him, right? Because they, they literally just start following him, like walking after him. But he's not just talking about the fact that they're following him in a literal sense. He's also talking about the fact that these two disciples are taking their first steps of faith. They're beginning to follow Jesus, beginning to follow him as Lord in discipleship, attaching themselves to Jesus. And that's what true seekers do. See, a seeker is someone who, like John the Baptist, like these two disciples, is actively looking for answers to the big questions of life. Trying to find the answers, taking steps forward in faith, even if it's not a full-orbed faith. Even if it's not saving faith yet. And we see their seeking teased out a little bit more in verses 38 and 39. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, John tells us, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Jesus sees two people literally following him. Jesus is walking along and now there's these two people behind him. And he turns to them and asks them a seemingly simple question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? These are actually the first recorded words of Jesus in this narrative so far. But they're significant words. Because again, they're not just a surface level question. Jesus isn't just asking them, why are you literally following me? He's getting to the core of belief. For every person asking a question we all need to wrestle with, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you looking for in this life? What questions Are you trying to find answers to? Notice what they call Jesus in their answer. They call him rabbi. John, again, he tells us that means teacher. They're identifying Jesus as someone who can give them the answers they're looking for in life. They believe that, and so they're asking him this. But I love how they answer his penetrating questions. kind of odd, right? He says, what are you seeking? Kind of getting to the core of their belief. And their response to them is, hey, where are you staying? That's a weird answer to his question, right? Say, where, where's your hotel? Are you from around here? But I think what they're getting at in asking that is like, hey, can we sit down for a little while and talk? Like, I, I can't answer what are you seeking in a one-liner. Like, I've got tons of questions, Jesus. Like, where are you staying? Like, let's just go hang and talk for a while. Maybe all night. And I think that's what, exactly what they do. It says, John, or John says, they stayed with him that day meaning they spent the night because it was the 10th hour, which for us is about 4 p.m. So they're hanging out with Jesus the whole rest of the afternoon, the whole evening. 
They're hanging out with him, talking with him, asking these questions. The one in whom they're seeking, the one who they believed could give them answers and hope and life in the midst of a confusing and challenging world. What happens after they spend time with Jesus? Verses 40 through 42, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What does Andrew do? He goes to his brother and says, This is it. We we found the one we've been looking for. The promised Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one that the Old Testament spoke of. The one who was the anointed priest, the anointed prophet, the anointed king set apart that would come to be a redeemer and a restorer of God's people who would rule and reign over everyone and bring about restoration of God's creation. Andrew's going to Peter, his brother, Simon at this point, and says, hey, he's here. He's here. But here's the thing I love about this. There is no way that Andrew has a full understanding of what it actually means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He can't possibly know how that's actually going to play out in and through Jesus' life. It's the beginning of belief, but it's not fully formed belief. I mean, we're the same. If you already call yourself a follower of Jesus, you didn't figure everything out about Jesus before you began to follow him. And if you don't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, you don't have to figure everything out about Jesus before you can begin to follow him. Our incomprehensible God has made himself known, but that doesn't mean that our small little finite brains can wrap our minds around that, that we can fully understand that before we begin to follow him in faith. In fact, I would argue the more we plumb the depths of who God is, we realize we don't know anything. Our God is vast and magnificent. And man, that's the kind of God I want to worship and follow. Not the one that I can explain backwards and forwards, inside and out. The one who is mysterious, yet makes himself known to me. So let me ask you this morning, what are you seeking? What are you really seeking in this life? And I want you to take time. You can take time right now in this moment to, to think about that. Maybe something comes to your, the forefront of your mind. But I would guess, just like these first disciples, that question is a penetrating question that you need to take some time to think on this week. What am I seeking? What am I running after? What am I chasing after? Where am I looking for answers in this life? Is it in Jesus or in something else? For those of us who do believe, there's something else us to notice here in this first part of this story. What does Andrew do after he has this encounter with Jesus? What What does Andrew do? He goes and tells somebody about it. And not just anyone, he goes and tells his brother. Seeking and finding helps us to help others seek and find. And how does he do it? He says, we found the Messiah, the Redeemer. And then verse 42, what does he say? He brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. That may be one of the most important sentences in this text. When Christ has radically changed your life, you don't need to empirically prove that to someone. To like give them proof and evidence of how Christ has changed your life. No, what you have the privilege of doing is inviting others to come with you to come and see Jesus. 
and encounter them on, his own, on their own. And so if someone you know right now in your life is genuinely seeking, if someone in your life right now is purposefully seeking, I want you to purposefully and lovingly point them to the Lamb of God, invite them to come and see Jesus. And what happens? Simon becomes Peter. In a moment, his life is changed by Jesus in a way that Peter cannot fathom at that point. He has no idea what's about to happen. But we get to see more of it play out as this story unfolds. John shifts the scene in verse 43 by saying, the next day. This leads to our second part, the skeptic. The skeptic. The segue from the seeker to the skeptic is this brief but life-changing interaction that Jesus has with Philip. John, the author, states it so matter-of-factly. He says, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. I mean, that's the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that you're going to follow him in every aspect of your life. It's an invitation Jesus gives to us. It's the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, is to orient your life around Christ. And so Jesus calls Philip. Verse 44 tells us that he's from the same place as Andrew and Peter. They're from the same hometown. And Philip, likely a seeker, also responds in faith. And we know this from what Philip says in verse 45. He makes this confessional statement. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip, like Andrew, he goes to find someone who he's close to and tell them about Jesus. And he says, this is the one. This is the one that all the scriptures point to, all the scriptures talk about. What he's telling us is that every aspect of your Bible from beginning to end are always pointing towards Christ. They're always pointing towards this Redeemer coming. And he's saying, everything we've read, everything we've studied, everything we've thought about, it's here. He's here. But Nathaniel isn't so sure. I can picture Nathaniel kind of looking at Philip with a funny look on his face. Like, Philip, that seems a little crazy, man. Maybe almost too good to be true that the Messiah has actually come. Like, this has been something we've looked forward to, but I don't know if it's really going to happen. And then... Philip tells him this most shocking thing for Nathaniel. He says, the promised one, this Messiah, this king who's going to rule over everything, he's from Nazareth. He's, he's the carpenter, Joseph. He's his son. What does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now what's going on here? Galilee is this area in Israel. Jerusalem is in the south of Israel, but Galilee is in the north. Nazareth is a small town in Galilee probably more of a rural area. And what I think you see Nathaniel doing here is he's, he's evidencing his prejudice and his arrogance. And I think we get that. We see that in our own culture today. Sometimes you can have something like, let's just use where we live. If you live in D.C., you're like, man, I live in, I live in the district. <laughs> Not just Washington, D.C., the district. You live in Fairfax, like the suburbs? All right. But then people in Fairfax are like, I live in, I live in Fairfax. You live in Manassas? All right. And so we just find someone else to put down. Or we can be super pretentious Virginians and be like, oh, I live in northern Virginia. (laughs) Right? Like the rest of Virginia should be a separate state because we have our own thing going here because we live in northern Virginia. 
That's kind of what Nathaniel's doing here. He's, he's evidencing his prejudice, saying like, Nazareth, nothing good could come out of that place. But I think he's also revealing something else. It's just unexpected. If, if Philip had come and said, the Messiah's here and he's in Jerusalem, he's at the temple right now, you've you got to come check this guy out, he'd be like, sure, let's go. But Podunk Nazareth? Like, no way. No way. I mean, have you ever been around someone who rolls their eyes? Maybe you're an eye roller. When you roll your eyes or somebody eye, or, or rolls their eyes, it, it's an expression of contempt. It's disdain. It's disrespect. Like, whatever. Uh, what Nathaniel's doing here when he says, can anything good come out of, out of Nazareth? And Nathaniel's essentially rolling his eyes at this ridiculous idea that something like that could happen. Nathaniel is skeptical. He's skeptical. Many people today, maybe even some of you in this room, view Christianity and the good news of the gospel in the exact same way as Nathaniel. You're thinking, can anything good like this come out of Nazareth? You roll your eyes at Jesus. Nathaniel doesn't ask any real questions. He doesn't ask Philip, like, oh, hold on a second. You've got to tell me a little bit more. I need to know a little bit more about this. He doesn't express his doubt and want to learn more. He seeks to dismiss right away with this prejudicial statement. But rejecting something out of hand, rejecting something or having contempt for for something from the get-go, it it isn't intellectually honest and ultimately leads to death. See, you can be skeptical about Jesus. You can even be leery about Jesus, but you can't outright dismiss Jesus. He can't be ignored. Nathaniel makes this bold statement of skepticism but how does Philip respond? Remember, Philip, he's just started following Jesus. He hasn't read a ton of theology books. He hasn't read a bunch of apologetics books. He hasn't taken a seminary course. He likely, at this point, hasn't even heard Jesus teach anything yet. So what does he do? The same thing that all of us should do when we encounter skepticism. Look at the second half of verse 46. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him, come and see. Come and see. The answer to skepticism isn't more proofs or evidence. Those things can be helpful in the right time and the right place. The, the answer to skepticism is inviting people to actually and honestly come and see Jesus for who he actually is, to come and see Jesus for themselves. And what happens? Nathaniel goes. See, Nathaniel had questions like anyone else his age does. Nathaniel has questions like, Anyone would want answers too. And so even in his skepticism, he goes. And I think that's actually pretty revealing to us about someone you might encounter who's skeptical. A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times under bold outward skepticism, somebody's looking for answers. They're still looking for answers to the the questions of life. They're still searching. But our culture is ready to fill in the blank. But what Philip believes, what we believe here at Sojourn, is that only Jesus, the real Jesus, can provide the answers to life that we're looking for. Only the real Jesus, the one who is lasting and true, can provide us with what is truly lasting and life-giving and true. Why? Because only Jesus deals with our core problem, which begins to unfold for Nathaniel in these next few verses. Look at verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. 
Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What happens here? Jesus sees Nathanael approaching him, and he tells Nathanael that he saw him long before he was walking toward him. He's displaying his divine nature before a skeptic, as if to say to Nathanael, yes, Nathanael, it's true. I'm exactly who Philip told you I am. Now, we don't know what was happening under the fig tree or why Jesus inserts that detail, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Jesus sees into the depths of people thoroughly. He knows you even before you know him. Now, this isn't some like creepy Santa Claus kind of way, right? Like he knows when you were sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been good or bad. So be good for goodness sake. That's weird, right? Like Santa's just like watching you while you're snoring or something like that. You know, this is knowing in a way that leads to life. He knows the insides and outs of who you are. He knows you fully and yet loves you completely. It's out of this knowing that Jesus calls Nathaniel, out of this knowing that he calls Philip and calls Peter. He's calling them to himself in a way to make them into who he intends for them to be. That's the kind of knowing that Jesus has here and he's expressing to Nathaniel. And what happens? What happens to Nathaniel? The skeptic flips his script. He goes all of a sudden, he's like, you are him. And he doesn't just say like, wow, okay, I, I, maybe I am a little bit more interested in learning about you. No, he goes and just says, you, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I love Jesus asked this question back to Nathaniel. It has a little bit of a rebuke in it. What he says here, he confesses this, and then it says this, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see even greater things than me telling you I saw you, Nathaniel. You're going to see me perform signs and miracles. You're going to see me heal people and provide for people, both confront and comfort people. Nathaniel, you're going to see me crucified on a cross for your sin and rise again from the grave to live forever and ever and ever. He's essentially saying to Nathaniel, you don't really know. You don't fully know who I am, but Nathaniel, you will know as I reveal myself to you. What Jesus says about himself in verse 51 is important for us to pay attention to because he's speaking to you. Verse 51, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's not the singular, that's the plural. Truly, truly, I say to you all, to y'all, everyone who would listen. This is what he says, though. It's significant and revealing. He's referring to something that happened to Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob is out and he has this vision where he sees a, a ladder or a staircase going up into the heavens and angels ascending and descending. It's a staircase to heaven, stairway to heaven. And what that does is it's a foreshadowing of a way for the holy God and sinful humanity to have access to that holy God. He's foreshadowing that a way will be made once again for these humanity that's rebelled against God to be united back to him. When Jacob saw that, he named the place Bethel, which means house of God. 
And what happens in a house? Community happens in a house. Relationships happen in a house. You're in one another's presence in the house. He's saying, man, I see this. There's going to come a day when the house of God, the presence of God, will all be able to interact with him in this way. So when Jesus says that he's going to see this, he's going to see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, on himself, what he's saying is, I'm the way of God. I'm the way to him. I'm the house of God. Jesus is declaring to us, giving a foreshadowing of what's going to come, that he has come to us as one of us to rescue us. It's an invitation to the seeker. It's an invitation to the skeptic to see everything through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. To come to him in order to gain entrance into the presence of God. Which leads to our last point for today, the Savior. Now, we can read this text and we can learn a whole lot about personal evangelism in this text, about how to go and share the gospel with someone and invite someone to come and follow Christ. In each instance, we see someone start following Jesus and then go tell others about him. And that's 100% consistent with what Jesus calls us to in Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's consistent with that. As you become a disciple, you go and make disciples. But the first lesson from this text isn't personal evangelism. It's personal encounter. A personal encounter with the Savior. In other words, you are not going to be compelled to go tell anyone about Jesus if you haven't or aren't regularly encountering him. The one who comes in the least likely way from the least likely place to the least likely people. And so if you call yourself a follower of Christ, we need to be reminded of this, that I don't want you to take this and go, okay, great, I just need to go tell more people about Jesus. My first question to you is, are you encountering Jesus on your own? Are you coming and seeing Jesus regularly on your own? I mean, I need that in my own life. I need to be reminded of that. When I'm out of sorts in my day or my week or a particular month and I'm not focusing on Christ, I can lose focus and not go and want to tell anybody about him because I'm not even going to him. But man, when I encounter Christ, when I read about my Savior in the Holy Word, when I pray and spend time with him in communion with him, when I gather together as the church, I'm reminded of the beauty of my Savior, the richness of my King, the grandeur of my God, and I respond in awe and worship. And it's then in that moment that I'm able, out of the overflow of my life, out of the overflow of my heart and my belief, my own encounter with Christ, to go and tell someone else, you need to come and see him too. Come and see my Jesus. Come and see the Savior. And did you notice how many times in this text John uses the language of seeing, looking, beholding? Entrance into the kingdom of God. It doesn't come about because you have it all figured out. Entrance into the kingdom of God doesn't come about because the good you do in your life outweighs the bad in your life. Entrance into the kingdom of God does not come about because of the demographics of who you are, from your family background, or where you're from, or what you look like, or how much you can do. No, entrance into the kingdom of God comes about, it begins when you come and see Jesus. When you look to him, when you place your faith in him for who he is and what he's done. In other words, entrance into the kingdom of God is open to anyone who trusts not in themselves, but in Jesus. See, every instance in this narrative, people aren't confronted with ideas. They're not confronted with philosophies. They're not confronted with a system of belief. Those things are okay. They're important. There's a right time and place for that. But they're always a means to an end. 
What each of these people are confronted with is not a what, but a who. They're confronted with Jesus. And it isn't a confrontation that leads to relational conflict. It's a confrontation that leads to internal conflict. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the king, if he's the Lord of all, the Savior of the world, will I follow him or will I reject him? The same is true for each of us. You can wrestle with big questions. You can wrestle with important questions in life. But at the end of the day, what you most significantly need to wrestle with is the person of Jesus. The one who asks you, what are you seeking? And the one who tells you, you will see greater things than these. Jesus is not opposed to you thinking or using your brain. He made it. (laughs) He put it in your body to be able to think deeply about things. But he wants you to use your brain in a way that you're actually dealing with who Jesus really is. Behold, look, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has provided everything you need. When it comes to Jesus, seekers and skeptics are welcome. Because when it comes to Jesus, the only thing you need is need. The only thing you need is nothing. So come and let's see Jesus together. One of the ways that we can be regularly and tangibly reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done is by taking communion together every week. In this sacred meal, we eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. And we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross to take on all of our sin and all of our shame. It's an opportunity to taste and see the goodness and grace of God given to us in Christ, to be spiritually refreshed, Jesus came to rescue us, and he'll come again to bring us all the way home. So come forward this morning, brother and sister. Come forward this morning with eyes of faith to see your Savior who laid down his life for you and rose again from the grave. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope that you really would think on what's been said this morning as you even see Christ jumping out from the pages of this text. And instead of coming forward and taking communion, I want to invite you, as Jesus invites you, to take Christ right now. That as you sit in your seat, that you'd say, I believe, and place your faith in him. And then you can let somebody around you know, I I want to start following Jesus, but I don't really know what that looks like. That's okay. That's what this community, this church is here for, is to help you learn, like all these people we see in this story, start to follow him. And then next week you can come forward and take communion as a new member of this family, a new brother or sister in Christ. For those that will come forward, come to the tables in the front or the tables in the back. What Christ our Redeemer will be spoken over you as you take the bread and take the cup this morning. Let's pray. God, we pray very simply this, that you would give us eyes of faith today. Would you help us to bring all of our doubt and all of our unbelief and lay them at the feet of Jesus and to see him for who he truly is. Help us to come and see Christ. And whether we've been following Jesus for a long time, and if that's the case, I pray that you'd refresh our view of Jesus, that we'd be eager to look on him as we were the first time we believed, that you'd compel us to go as we encounter Christ on our own, to go and share him with others and invite others to come and see him too. And for those that are gathered here this morning that don't yet know you, for our friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, classmates that we'll interact with this week that maybe are seeking or maybe are skeptical. God, I pray that you'd awaken their hearts, 
Give them eyes of faith to see as well. Enable them to cross from death to life. And God, I pray that we'd be right there to say, like Philip, like Andrew, come and see him. Come and see him. God, we pray that you do a, a revival, an awakening in Fairfax, in this area, even within this church, that you'd increase our joy and our affections for you. God, I pray that we would center our life on you above anything and everything else. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace you give us in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.